Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going back to the middle of the 20th century, to both sides of the Atlantic, to both sides of the Channel, with an unusual memoirs. It's by someone whose name I had never heard before, and it's about someone whose name I had never heard before. I should add that these two people, father and son, have the same name, Michael Arlen, although the son technically is Michael J. Arlen. But that probably won't shed any light on the matter. What may catch your attention was that, during his pomp, the 1920s, Michael Arlen Sr. was a more successful novelist than Hemingway and Fitzgerald, combined. But what do we know about him today? That story, and many others, form the memoirs by Michael Arlen Jr. The book is Exiles, and it was published in 1970. Here's how Exiles begins, in typically mellifluous conversational prose. He used to joke about being frail and weak, about having had TB as a boy, and then something wrong with his back, and then a car accident. But he so clearly didn't really think himself frail or weak. And when things started going wrong for him, going wrong in him, I guess, was more like it, he couldn't countenance it at all. The pain, yes, or things like that. Discomfort is what they call it. He could manage that all very damned well but not the fact of things truly starting to go wrong. The he of this opening paragraph is the once world-famous author, Michael Arlen Sr., the subject of the memoirs. Michael Arlen was a self-made man. Born Dikran Kuyumjan, the child of an Armenian merchant-class family that fled the Turks, his own efforts made him the center of an uber-waspy circle of cultural and political elites. But when we first meet him, he's on the last legs and can't do much about it. His son, who is writing the memoirs, is at the other side of the spectrum. He's 25, in the army, and, against the frail and declining figure of his father, he is just beginning his life. The sharp contrast between young and old is exhibited in the writing. Though, in this first chapter, the son is describing the decline of the father, he does so with a clear-sighted command, and the result is a prose so fluid, so assured, that I'm tempted to quote most of the first chapter. I mean, I really do want to, but I'm going to limit myself. So here's a little bit. It happened in the spring, I think. I remember the time vaguely, April. It must have been spring, but I was in the army then and not paying much attention to seasons. Fort Dix, whiteboard barracks. All that dust and boots beside the bed and those baggy, dusty fatigues. A weird, soft life soft amid the weapons, the rifles, the machinery, the sounds of tank battalions and howitzers on the distant ranges. It was a telegram, one of those long telegrams with some of the keywords hashed up by the local teletypist. They called me out of formation one morning into the orderly room. The soft-faced, big-bellied, indoors sergeants sitting around at their desks having coffee. Some corporal handed me this thing, and I opened it, and read it standing there. It seemed to read so easily, I read it right through. Your father going into hospital today. Suspected cancer. Excellent doctor. Chances are good. We'll keep you advised. 
And in a strange way, I believed it, believed anyway the calm, code-like positivism of the message. Suspected. Excellent. Chances are good. We'll keep you advised. My mother had a way with telegrams. It was one of the sergeants who snapped me out of it. What is a kid? Your girl got pregnant? No, I said. My father's going into the hospital for an operation. And then I told them some more, and then they all started wheeling into lines, stirring things up. Papers, forms, one of the roundest and most dough-faced of the sergeants, tap, tap, tapping out an emergency pass on a tiny typewriter in the corner. It was very nice, one of those acts of complicity. The tone is a mellower, jauntier Tobias Wolf, circa The Barracks Thief, or David Gilmore, around the time of Lost Between Houses. It's the sprezzatura that the author gives off that makes the language sing. And though we associate sprezzatura with ease and nonchalance, we know as readers that this is a mask. It takes a great deal of effort to achieve effortlessness, and it takes tact throughout the editing process to know what to cut and what to keep in order to maintain that original freshness. And above both these things, I think, it takes command of the material. Only once you have complete certainty of the story you wish to write can you choose the most telling details and shed almost all the rest. Only then can you pare the story down to the minimum number of dots and dare your reader to fly from one to the other to connect them. If the author's quicksilver prose seems out of line with the stolid death it is portraying, I'd say it isn't. It suits the subject, the dying man, who was, in his life, all style, and it deepens the son's sadness in losing him. His eyes were half-closed as he talked, and then he said he was tired. I think I'll just sleep for a while, is what he said. And I took his tray up, which had a thing of custard on it that he hadn't touched, and carried it down. And 20 minutes later, the nurse, who had looked in on him, came down the stairs to tell us he was dead. One last point, if I may. Listen to the description of the item on the tray. A thing of custard. To use the word thing. That's normally intolerable. But in this case, I think it's right. The author is losing his ability to be precise and is relegating the unimportant to the background. It's a small move on his part, using the word thing instead of cup or bowl or ramekin. But his confidence allows the transgression, and the transgression counterintuitively draws the reader in. We trust this author who so casually flouts the rules. We envy him even as he is reliving in his writing his worst hours. Having left the matter of death behind, Arlen rewinds, as writers will, to the beginning of the story, the tale of his father's rise as far back as he can trace it. Although the name Michael Arlen will mean nothing to most readers and meant little by the end of Arlen's own life, there was a time when his name was the biggest of the big when people who currently populate our canon of 1920s English and American literature wanted to be him, or at least hang out with him. He had been so good, so shining, so flashing, such a proud exotic animal. He had had all these things, had his hands around them, had fondled them. The books, the money, the sun shining on silver, all those bright, bright whites and blues beside the Mediterranean, big silent cars, the speedboats, the drive along the corniche and over the hills to Monte Carlo, Byzantium. At Maxine Elliott's, he and Willie Mom would lunch, serene amid all those monkeys and the half-mad wild deer she kept about her, and Vincent Sheen and Freddie Lewison, and sometimes Churchill would come by, Winston, who was writing all those pieces for Colliers, and talked and drank and sometimes went to paint in the afternoons. How did Arlen manage all this? By being the author of one particular book, The Green Hat, 
the only one of the 14 he wrote that was a hit. Not heard of the green hat? Well, neither have I. Neither has most of the internet. In Exiles, it is described, though not dismissed, as a sub-Fitzgerald novel about jazz-age excesses, and there doesn't seem to be much more to it than that. Which is fine, because the work's author and the world he actually lived in, described in those crumbs from the last excerpt, is far more interesting than the world he fantasized. Those worlds, however, the ones lived in and the ones written about, would come to a swift end. Even as a kid, I can remember it changing. A whole new sequence of snapshots. My father listening each evening to the BBC's Empire Service. Fouchard, the old gardener absently oiling his 1918 rifle. The Eva-looking, brown-tinted drawings about gas masks and tanks and barrage balloons that started appearing in the illustrated London news. It is easy enough, I guess, to look back with hindsight and talk smoothly about Europe dancing while the storm clouds gathered. And I suppose there was some of that going on. I suppose there always is. But the people I peer back towards... I don't know that in the end they will turn out to have acted much differently towards their time than you or me, which is to say that when the dark shapes finally rose above the horizon, finally appeared, inescapably visible above the horizon line, they worried, felt bad, were scared, were not scared, tried to do certain things, knowing that the things they tried were only things, no more than things, and that by then, irreversibly, they were in the grip of forces." The war interrupted the world as Michael Arlen Sr. knew it, and apparently that world was the only one about which he could write. The war meant he stopped writing literature. In fact, he never published anything of significance again, and eventually he put down his writing pen altogether. Exiles traces Michael Arlen Sr.'s displacement in space and time. The displacement from his spiritual home in the Côte d'Azur and his apparent cultural home in pre-war Europe, and the effect of this displacement is evident on every scale. Here, for instance, Michael Arlen Jr. goes to L.A. to visit his father, who has been asked to come out to Hollywood to work on a script, which, like most other things the father takes on, goes nowhere. Note the sense of estrangement between father and son. My father met me at the station in Los Angeles. I didn't recognize him at first, which was okay. He was still far away, with one of those wide-brimmed, dark hats he used to wear. Everything was smaller, less than I'd expected. California was smaller, less, and he too. My father, I wondered, knowing full well that this man advancing down the platform was inalterably my father. Arms outstretched, a sudden wave. We hugged. He had tears along his face, this stranger. I hugged him hard, harder, this stranger. I kept looking at him, trying to do so in a way that wouldn't be evident. We walked, the two of us, back down the platform. How big you are, he kept saying. How well you look. How is everything at school? I answered dutifully, trying not to be dutiful. He seemed so small to me, I hadn't realized he was so small. No taller than I was, really. We went outside and took a taxi to the hotel, the Beverly Wilshire. I have a room for you, he said, just down the hall from me. I let him propel me about. Hotel clerks, bellboys, the Beverly Wilshire seemed dark and garish. And I felt myself withdrawing, withdrawing all the time. Breakfast, he kept saying. You must be hungry. I said I wasn't. Of course you are, he said. We'll have breakfast together. Shall we have it up here, he asked. Or shall we go downstairs? 
The dining room isn't much, he said. You should have seen the food we had in England, he said, when the waiter and the table arrived. Everything is amazing here, he said. The Americans are amazing. I looked at him across the hotel table in that hotel room. I didn't mind hotels. There had been that hotel in London. Each winter for a few weeks after Christmas. Cold winds outside. Inside, the smell of porridge. One called it porridge. Wheeled in on a large table. Gaiety, warmth. My father had been there too, in the next room in fact. And now, here he was, this man. His mustache was thicker than I'd remembered. I spoke to him about my school and said thank you a lot. He seemed not to notice any of it, although once he suddenly reached out his hand across the table and clasped me, and I tried to clasp him back, and there was something in his eyes just then, but I don't know what it was. The father is estranged from himself, his son grows estranged from him. Part of this is the process that every child undergoes, and Freud describes it in his short essay, Family Romances, the following way. The liberation of an individual, as he grows up, from the authority of his parents, is one of the most necessary, though one of the most painful results brought about by the course of his development. It is quite essential that that liberation should occur, and it may be presumed that it has been to some extent achieved by everyone who has reached a normal state. Indeed, the whole progress of society rests upon the opposition between successive generations. Some of this liberation, though, expresses itself as hate. The son not only finds his father distant, weak, pathetic, he begins to find him worthy of contempt, principally for being different to other American fathers. In the son's view, the father's crime is to be visibly different. There's his Armenian accent, his Levantine physiognomy, his European style. But he's also invisibly different, and all the more dangerous for being so. There is something the son cannot identify as the source of his hatred, and so long as the target remains elusive, it cannot be hit. And if it cannot be hit, it cannot be dealt with. Before long, Junior begins to regard Senior not as the protector of his family, but as a threat to its stability. The second major figure of the book is Michael J. Arlen's mother, the Countess Atalanta Mercati. Yes, you heard that right. While Michael Arlen's, or I should say Dikran Kuyumjan's, family fled the Turks westward into Europe, his future wife was born to a woman who herself fled eastward from the United States to Europe, where she married not one, but two aristocrats, one at a time though, and raised her daughter in Greece and the south of France, which sounds like one of Arlen's stories. But the mother is more or less relegated to an ancillary part in the memoirs. The character of Michael Arlen Sr. remains in the bullseye. And, if anything, her role is to serve as a sounding board for the troubles that befall the family. For, when the exclusive world crashed around Arlen Sr., its destruction echoes through his wife. One of the sadder aspects of this family story is that the father seems too self-involved to see how his decline affects his wife and his children. The consequences of the war in actual terms is that this firm and fixed pseudo-aristocratic family is instantly uprooted, and not just once, but again and again, eventually ending up in a fusty apartment in Manhattan. For the son, Michael Jr., this means being sent to one boarding school after another. Yes, they all seem in some way august, and yes, Arlen Jr. eventually makes his way to Harvard. However, the glitz that was not superficial, but in fact essential to the family's life, had turned to ashes by the time the author, Michael Jr., was growing up. So much of the memoirs describe this descent in one way or another. But if you're going to tie all the strings in a bow, showing just how low things have sunk, 
you've got to go to this description of the father's unused writing room in the Manhattan apartment, as well as where this apartment room leads the author to reminisce. Years later, there was this other room, a darker room now. The desk was still the same, shipped over from Cannes after the war. The desk stood in front of the windows, which looked out directly onto a grey brick building across 75th Street, and which were always covered by curtains. The desk had on it all the artifacts of writing, pencils, paper, notebooks, pens, ink. And around the walls of the room were books. The walls were painted green, a darkish sort of green. My mother had many wrangles with the painters over just the right shade of green. There were some pictures on the walls. Two Boucher little girls, two prints of birds. A watercolor of a hunting scene done very recently, reds and whites on some kind of greenish paper. The greenish paper went very well, she used to say, with the green walls. The room was called the library, and was in my mother and father's apartment in New York, and it was where my father worked, or was supposed to work, or tried to work, or something. For years, since the end of the war, he gave it all these airy stories about his not working, about his being retired. I'd come down from college then, sometimes on weekends, on vacations, and meet him for lunch at the St. Regis, where he nearly always lunched with friends, writers, editors, movie people, vague acquaintances who would simply drop by there around one o'clock or so, knowing he would be there. From time to time, some one of these would ask him what he was doing. What was he doing? And he had all these marvelous answers— His hard-working, or at any rate, employed table companions loved him for these answers. I do nothing, he would say. I'm retired. I read a lot. He had little set speeches he would sometimes make. I have the affection of my wife, the tolerance of my children, and the friendship of headwaiters. What more do I need? To reporters and columnists, who still interviewed him despite the fact he hadn't published anything in 15 years, He stressed the financial aspects of his retirement. The mistake most writers make, he would say, is to declare that when they have enough money, they will retire. Since they never have enough money, they never retire. And so poor Willie Mom goes on grinding out book after book. I try to be more modest. I said, when I have X amount of money, I shall retire. And as things turned out, I eventually had X amount of money and retired and lived happily ever after. He seemed to be living happily ever after, too, although in truth, I don't remember his having any friend close enough in those days to have known the difference, nor any friend he would let that close to him. A great many people seemed glad of his company, always had been glad of his company. He really was a very good talker, witty, knew a lot about things, had opinions about a lot of things, had style, sitting there in the St. Regis, the elegant mustache, the English-tailored blue suit, the gray silk tie, the pearl stick pin, the malacca cane beside him. Time editors would come for lunch and then agree. He really had the system beat. Why, he hadn't written a book in years and clearly was never happier. Better. Happier. Happier. Exiles is a book written in shades. The names come and go, though some of them, Coward, Goldwyn, Hemingway, the habit of referring to the Ritz-Carlton as the Carlton, do leave a mark. 
The waspy locales, boarding schools, yacht clubs, the St. Regis, give a momentary tingle, but are largely interchangeable. The events, with the exceptions of the father's death, are generally non-events, which is, I think, precisely the point. It's the littleness of what happens that is the story here. The big world, the real world, that world had been left behind, had existed before the author was even born. That was the world that the father had lived in, the mother had lived in, and it was the world that had exiled them. This book is covered in nostalgia, in the original sense of the word. Not love of the past, but pain caused by homesickness, by an inability to return to that lost home. And yet that nostalgia is invisible. Because while the pain should tear this story to pieces, the writing stays perfectly tranquil through all the troubles. I, or I should say Bernadette, quoted from this book more than normally because that's where the book is in words. I don't mean this facetiously. What I mean is it's not in the character, the plots, the ideas, but the words. It's been a while since I read an author so at ease in the English language. There are a few exceptions to this observation, which are mostly confined to the shorter chapters that do not allow the author to spread his story as broadly as he generally does. But almost the entire book is an irresistible monologue. This is a book I regretted finishing because it meant that I'd be leaving the narrator behind. For some authors, it can take a number of books to establish an authorial voice. For others, it builds within a single book through accretion. In Exiles, the author's voice is presented in its ideal form, liquid smooth, sonorous, and confident from the first page. Regardless of what else Michael J. Arlen writes, I would be interested in reading it. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Amos Oz's memoirs of growing up in 1940s and 50s Jerusalem, entitled A Tale of Love and Darkness, and it's an amazing book. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. A special thanks to Natalie Matheson, reader of excerpts. Okay. He used to joke about... What's the tone of this? What it um, is? This guy is so fucking buttery. He's so silky when he writes. Okay. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. I already know the answer to this one. What do you call yes, potato snacks? Crisps. And as we enter the middle of spring training, go Jays. Greetings, I'm Ian Wynn, host of Latopia After Dark. As a Californian living in London, I have a special relationship with myself, and it's one I'd like to share with you. Okay, that came out wrong, but what I'm trying to say is here on Latopia After Dark, we bridge the gap between nations, generations, people, and ideas. We reach out and... No, we don't touch people, but our guests are experts in their fields. All of them can read, and none of them take themselves too seriously, or at least not for very long. Welcome to Latopia After Dark, a digital campfire for the internet age. So sit down, grab some wood, and get warm. I'm going to have to do this again, aren't I?